Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. We all know that the early pages of a novel or story are very difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very excited to have Marissa Crane, who is going to share the first pages of their novel, I Keep My exoskeletons to myself. It just came out in January. Not only does it have an amazing title, but it also has a great, amazing premise. Good morning, Marissa. Good morning, Michelle. Happy to be here. Happy to be. Thank you so much for being with us. Marissa Crane's stories and essays have appeared or are forthcoming in Prairie Schooner, Passages North, Joyland, The Offing, No Tokens, the Florida Review, Tri-Quarterly, Lit Hub, Catapult, Friction, and Elsewhere, an attendee of the Tin House Writers Workshop and the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and an American Short Fiction Merit Fellow. They currently live in San, San Diego with their wife and child. I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself as their first novel, and it has also just won the New York Times Editor's Choice list. So we're very excited about that. Thank you, Marissa. Um, so this book just came out. You're doing all sorts of events for this, talking about your book a lot. Um, and so hopefully we can dig into maybe even something new because we're going to be focusing just on your early pages. Um, and everyone, if you're listening to the podcast um, or even um, or if you're even on Substack, you can find a link to the pages on the in the podcast notes or on our Substack page. So if you really are a visual learner and you need you need to actually look at what we're talking about. Um, the link is there to follow. Okay, so Marissa, give us a quick summary of the book so we actually know what we're talking about when we talk about those first pages. All right, I'm going to try to keep it quick. As with speculative fiction, it's sometimes hard, but yeah. uh, it's this world where prisons don't exist anymore, and um, in place of that, there is a new sort of punishment system in which quote wrongdoers are given an extra shadow for their crime. Um, and then, you know, they can have subsequent extra shadows for each sort of crime that they commit. Um, it's a corrupt world, much like ours, where uh, someone may not necessarily have committed a real crime and, you know, certain marginalized people are targeted and and whatnot. And um, <clears throat> so in this world, um, we meet the narrator, Chris, who has an extra shadow herself that's called a Shadester. And um, the the inciting incident is essentially that her wife dies during childbirth and this the government the department of balance gives the new baby an extra shadow for quote killing her mother so right. that's where we meet them and then sort of that's the summary that like, the book then follows this um relationship chris grieving raising this child in this oppressive um surveillance state where there's also cameras everywhere um and trying to navigate how to teach this child self-love and, and forgiveness and, and just figure out parenting, you know, through trauma and grief. Right, right, okay. Um, okay, let's listen to your first pages. The kid is born with two shadows. You better believe I head straight down to the Department of Balance office to appeal their decision. It isn't right giving an extra shadow to a baby. It's not like she killed you on purpose, Bo. She's a newborn baby for fuck's sake. She's basically a more sophisticated potato. And that's exactly what I tell the receptionist, resting his boots on top of his desk. He's long and slender with a droopy face. Where's the father, he says. 
I'm her other mother, I say, trying to steady my pulse. I always hate this moment of vulnerability, of simultaneously waiting for and anticipating a reaction. Oh, I see. He clears his throat, then lowers his boots and leans his elbows on the desk. Sorry, those desks are automatic shadow assignments, ma'am. What do you mean, I ask, knowing fully well what he means. His lips part into an approximation of a smile, as if daring me to challenge him further. Is it because I have one? Because that's not her fault, I say, my face gathering heat. No, ma'am, it's standard procedure, he says. That's not true and you fucking know, I say, stopping myself before I accuse the department of living up to its reputation. Everybody knows they're homophobic, racist, transphobic, ableist, xenophobic, sexist, all the goddamn phobics and is. But they'd sooner strip away my extra shadow than admit it. And yet punishing a newborn still seems excessive. But maybe I'm giving the department too much credit. I'm afraid I don't make the rules, but I do make people hellbent on breaking them wish they hadn't, says the receptionist. I haven't been a widow. What a miserable, lonely word for more than an hour. I don't want to lose our baby, too. But what I want matters very little to my temper, which I can feel building behind my eyes before it finally overflows, wet, hot tears streaming down my face. It has always been this way, my anger and sadness twin forces inside of me. I look down at the squish-faced kid, expecting to find a sleeping baby, peacefully unaware, but no. She is wide awake, her big swollen eyes full of questions, her blue-gray alien hand pressed to her cheek. Come on, I say between sniffles, please don't do this to her. He knits his eyebrows together in a painful display of empathy. It would have been kinder if he punched me in the face. You've got to be fucking kidding, I say. Don't exactly kid around here, he says, at least not until happy hour. He laughs when he says this, and I imagine him and the boys at a high top table, spilling pints all over each other and sharing the day's stories. The kid and I no more significant than a cockroach squashed under his foot. Fuck you, I say. I watch him clench and unclench his jaw, perhaps deciding his next move. Although I can't see him, I can feel the security guard inch closer to me. His movement's quiet and fluid like a good hunter. I readjust my grip on the kid. My breath grows stale in my chest. Get her out of here, says the receptionist. The shadester's not worth my time. The security guard grips me by the bicep and escorts me out the door, releasing me back into the world with a small pointed shove. Upon confronting the car seat, I realize it had been your job to learn how to use it. it. Takes me 20 minutes to get all the kids' parts where they need to go. Except for her second shadow. It has a smug freedom about it that sets my teeth on edge. I swear I catch it high-fiving mine. You aren't waiting for us when we get home. You aren't lying in bed reading. You aren't cooing in mischief's fluffy face. You aren't sifting through the mail, perusing the circulars for sales. You aren't, against your better judgment, making an afternoon coffee. Suddenly, all this unoccupied space. I want to get blackout drunk for months on end. Yes, that's what I want. I want to sit in my own filth and like it. Excellent. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. What I love about this is it's so full of voice and you just get right into a scene and the scene allows you to begin the world building, but there's no feeling of anxiety. Like I have to explain this. I have to give this background. So 
Were these always your first pages or did you just kind of struggle to find them? Were there somewhere later in the book? How did you come to these as your first pages? Well, so I was really lucky in that this first line like came to me and then it wouldn't leave me alone for the for the rest of my days until I wrote it. Um, just like a quick little backstory. I had written a poem like a million years ago that sort of embodied this world and it was meant to shame myself. Um for like hurting people and behaving badly. And I thought that shame would work um, to promote behavioral change, which it doesn't. Um, but it was if if the shadows of everyone you've ever hurt followed you around day in and day out, would you still be so reckless with people's hearts? Um, so I completely forgot about writing that. Um, and then, you know, one day I was um, you know, in the shower, wherever great ideas happen. And it just, the kid is born with two shadows. The first line popped in my head and it just stuck to me. Like everywhere I was going, it was just sort of nagging at me. And I was just like, okay, like this, this wants to be something, you know, that like weird sort of, um, magic that does happen. Mm -hmm. And when we're lucky enough to be struck by it, um, so, so I just, I thought like, well, okay, how could a kid be born with two shadows? And I'm just thinking about like, what does this even mean? And I, and I connected it to, to this old poem that I wrote and having it sort of be this mark of shame um, for the person to feel bad, you know, about what they've done. And then also as this constant reminder, so they just can't move on, they can't heal, they can't forgive themselves. And um, and then also, you know, as a warning to other people who, if they're walking around and they see, oh, that person's got three shadows, like they must, they must've done something wrong. I need to stay away from them. And, um, so, so really it was just figuring out what it means for a kid to be born with two shadows and like what that yeah. world looks like. And then, and then what does a baby do even in this world where it's usually punishment for a crime, what could a baby possibly have done? And you know, that's where the injustice from the government comes where they're like, oh, the baby killed, killed the mom. Um, so it, this was always the first line from beginning of time because it wouldn't leave me alone. And, and really it sort of flowed out of me at that point. Once I, once I sort of situated myself in the world, like there were those moments of like, this needs to come together. This needs to come together. And I didn't sit down to write it until I, felt like all of that line was contextualized and then that that scene really sort of came out um yeah did you have did any uh early readers or editors want you to alter anything in these first pages yeah so um in just the very end of that first scene like when when the security guard sort of escorts Chris out I had like some more like violence initially mm. like I actually had Chris like fighting this guy <laughs> like tackling him out of rage and um and my editor was like this reads sort of like slapstick like <laughs> like it just wasn't landing as something violent like it's sort of it, it didn't make sense with the rest of like the voice and sort of the style of the book it just seemed like it didn't fit um so that was like some some tweaking that we we did early on where it just didn't even if it made sense for Chris because I do think that Chris has um yeah a capacity for violence in her um it just the scene felt off like the tone um it didn't really fit that sort of like melancholy angry but sad like tone right and so did you always know it was going to be a a novel 
Or was it no, a I, short story? I actually, yeah, I wrote a short story first, which seems to be very common for me. I don't know if it's just like a way to ex- like explore, sort of like get this idea down. And then um, when I write stories, it usually like I end it and it feels very complete and I like move on from it besides like revising it. But this one I wrote and I just wanted to spend so much more time in the world. And I kept thinking about the characters and like what they were doing. And I think I was just like, I need to dig back into this and expand this and and see what this can be because I didn't feel done with that story and I didn't feel done with the characters. Right. And so you talk about, was it always first person and always present tense? It was always first person, um, but I did go, I had like a million drafts where I just kept switching back and forth between present and past. And the past felt tricky because there's so many flashbacks already in the fragments, which I know we'll we'll get to talk about the fragments soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, because there's so much jumping back and forth between present and past, like I didn't want to dip into, like it just felt really annoying to just, what is it called? Past, past parse. Well, like past, we, perfect, we, yeah. yeah, like we had had done this and I was just like, I don't, I don't know. And then if I wasn't writing it that way, then it was a little bit harder to discern like where we were in time. And um, I, there's something, you know, I there's something to present tense for me. Like I loved it in Department of Speculation and Weather by by Jenny Ophel. And mm-hmm. I, it's probably easy to see when you look at my book that like she was an inspiration for me, like structurally with fragments. And I think she does like such a beautiful job of of like doing present tense well, like it feels so intentional. Um, and, you know, I think it's like a level of immediacy, but you you know, you can have immediacy in any tense, but I'm not sure. It's just something that is really compelling for me. It feels like when there's a story of this nature, like have it, having the reader sort of feel like they're sitting along and that they're rate of discovery is the same as the narrators because I think when when I write past tense obviously like you have the second narrator telling the story of their younger narrator and you can have that second narrator contextualize what was happening you know you end up oh looking back or da 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 and you know I love that for certain things but it it didn't feel useful for this I wanted them I think to be entrenched in what Chris was dealing with and for Chris really to only have insight like in the moment which is so um like filtered through her grief um and shame and everything like that if if it was in the past tense we might have had a different Chris who might have felt differently about these things that had had happened that's interesting because I mean we talk about so in the past tense that additional that narrator or stronger narrator um, yeah. that's that's coming from the present and talking about the past creates their own filter but you're basically saying you already had a filter I mean she's already having to get her voice out and already having to tell her story through all of these other obstacles um, of the time because her past is weighing heavily on her I mean she actually literally has a shadow of her past right. both in the voice and as a character yeah so I think I think that's great. And a lot of people um, first uh, present tense can be like if you have too minute too much immediacy, it can begin to 
um, tire us out. It, it can mm. begin to to feel like if, if it's all immediate, then it begins to lose its power. But I think the fact that you add those fragments and and move in that way kind of wakes it up. And again, we're we're going to talk about the fragments that she uses in a little bit. Um, but I think that also makes it easier to to handle for you. And so, and then you also talked about the voice. Um, was it a struggle? So her, you know, did some, did, as you kept writing, did her tone, did she begin to keep wanting to break out and like punch people or did the tone begin to waddle <laughs> away from you? Cause she's such a strong personality. Were, were you struggling with the voice or did you have it right away? Um, I, you know, generally I consider myself to be a pretty voicey writer and in a lot of ways it's been like the engine for me. Um, for anything that I write like I typically think of like a person and a voice first and plot second <laughs> which um is a very silly choice to make when you're writing a speculative novel that that requires plot um but it's always like that character who comes to me first and is sort of well I say that but I came with a came up with the first line first but so now I'm contradicting myself but I uh I I tend to like write in a way that I I would follow that voice anywhere and I hope that the reader would would be enticed by this voice so that's what they're maybe like sticking around for or um at least what brings them in very early like okay I'm not sure what's happening but like this voice is interesting or weird um you know I'm a big Miranda July fan um Mary Robeson big fan of her they've been really um influential for me in the way of like bizarreness you know um mm. sort of injecting that into narratives without losing like tenderness and and other you know sentiments like um I, I'm also thinking I'm a pretty sentimental writer which is always like a charged word that people are like no sentimentality in in writing and it also feels like a sexist word but we don't need to get into that but <laughs> um I but you have to have sentiment you want yeah, to have yeah. sentiment without being sentimental yeah 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 I yeah um so I think like that combination of of strangeness and sort of odd details and and maybe an odd voice um still paired with all of these like other moving things is for me when I'm reading always very powerful and always feels sort of like a magic trick. Like I'm like, how did Miranda July just create the strangest concept I've ever read? And then like has me in tears by the end. Right. Um, so that's sort of like a guiding principle for me. So, so I guess like when I was creating Chris, that was what I was thinking about. I wanted someone who was a bit strange, um, who has these idiosyncrasies, um, who you can't help but like know like she's just so specific of a of a person um and you know she does all of these strange things and says these strange things and maybe she makes poor choices and does things that you wouldn't do but um ultimately i my hope is that you want to cheer for her and like see her through and that a lot of the commitment there is is wanting to see her and the kid um sort of like make it and have that hope yeah. Yeah. And so what I love, so when you talk about, you know, you talk about these other authors um, basically giving you 
licensed for to be bizarre, to be strange, mm. which I think is interesting because I, I do find a lot of writers who are attempting first person and it less, unless it has that strangeness, I normally talk about it as a, as a filter through which their entire world has to be filtered through. And a lot of people, when they write first person, um, it's actually not strange enough. <laughs> um, mm. It's not bizarre enough. So I always go, well, why are you using first person then? Why aren't you using, why are you using the limitations of first person unless you do have that very strong voice? Because that gives reason for the first person choice is that strangeness and that that really skewed or warped um, view of the world, which all characters have, but first mm -hmm. person allows you to do it even more in a language. Um, and something else I wanted to talk about here that you're doing, and I mentioned it earlier when, when we talked um, before we started recording, um, that I want our listeners to think about. So Ben Percy writes in his book, uh, Thrill Me, which is a craft book, and he talks a lot about um, speculative fiction. He also comes from a, a literary fiction background, but he he writes a lot of speculative fiction these days. And he says, if you're going to try speculative fiction, start with changing just one thing instead of building an entire world. Um, start just with changing one thing. So that seems to be what you've done. You've just chosen to change that that one thing. Yeah. And, and you know, and that felt like in a few ways instinctual for me. Like I, I love that advice because it, it makes so much sense. I, and I think maybe that's a huge difference between like hard sci-fi and and speculative fiction or like literary fiction with a you know speculative bent or whatever. Is is that like sci-fi? There's just total world building. There's total like all of these changes, and um, that's not something I'm necessarily good at. I like envy people who are able to do that. Um, but yeah, I think it was also like the intensity of that change. Like I'm asking the reader to buy into the fact that people can just have an extra shadow like attached to them and that this is something that this, this government is capable of making happen. And like, without any explanation of how, like there's no mechanics, there's no anything. It's just like, you have to, you have to suspend your disbelief. We're in this world where this can happen. And now we're going to move on and not think about the mechanics. And we're going to think about the consequences. We're going to think about, you know, how this extra shadow implementation is now affecting these people in these profound ways and, and the far reaching consequences of shame and, and isolation. And obviously the lack of resources and so many things that obviously people in our world and, and society deal with. Yeah. And that's what I love. I mean, there's, there's a lot of confidence here. And so for other people that are thinking about uh, that are writing speculative fiction or thinking about playing with spe speculative fiction, um, taking a look at this first page, Marissa does just go into scene um, and there's not a lot of explanation um, and they don't spend a whole lot of time, again, as you said, uh, doing doing the background. Um, you just expect your reader to absolutely go with it. Um, and so I think that's a really good lesson because then it means we can just pay attention to uh, the conflict the main character, the turmoil she's going through. Um, and I think I think that's what's really significant with these pages. You also, so in this first page, you start, the kid is born with two shadows. You better believe I head straight down to the Department of Balance office to appeal their decision. So what I noticed interestingly, because you do later go into that, using that you, that a direct address to her wife, correct? Yeah. Um, 
And so um, there's a lot of, there are other novels. Actually, my, my first novel also had a strong you. It's always kind of fun because it kind of gives reason to the storytelling or reason mm. to the voice. Um, that doesn't mean that, that the writer is using second person though. This is still right. the first person, but there's an address to the you. Um, but it also prepares us in the second line for you to shift to the you later. Um, and so even though we would probably almost skip over that because it feels like a generic you and not not one that is directed to the character's wife, mm-hmm. um, but it still prepares us in a little way. So let's go to those later paragraphs again. So if you're actually able to look at the pages online, so uh, Marissa has in their last paragraph of this section, the security guard grips me by the bicep and escorts me out the door, releasing me back into the world with a small pointed shove. And then there's a white space break. And then we get, upon confronting the car seat, I realize that it has been your job to learn how to use it. It takes me 20 minutes to get all the kids' parts where they need to go, except for her second shadow. It has a smug freedom about it that sets my teeth on edge. I swear I catch it high-fiving mine. And then another white space break. And then you aren't waiting for us when we get home. And so what I love here is that you talk about bringing in her tenderness. And and these these fragments are, are basically the first time we really see that tenderness. So what happened? Like, what brought you? Did you know about that you when you were first working on this? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm like just attracted to this. I, I call it like the first person direct address. Um, sort of form, you know, people always ask me like, oh, you wrote a book in second person. I'm like, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I just think right. it's so like, I think it's so intimate and like, what could be more intimate than Chris speaking directly to her late wife? And and that it's like this love letter through time and space and and everything. And like, I also like how it's sort of like a private conversation turned public. Um, she's talking to this late beau, but the reader get is like gets to be almost voyeuristic. Like they're peering in on, on this um, very intimate exchange that lasts over many years. Um, it was also really helpful for the purposes of what Chris is going through with her grief. Um, she's feeling lonely and need somebody to talk to especially like in these early days like she has this kid but she also doesn't want to let go of Bo like you know rightfully so so like it feels like a way of reporting like the minutia of like daily life like all the things that Bo is missing um here here I'm going to report this to you even the baby's blowouts and, and this that and the other thing like everything that she's doing that you're missing out on so it also felt like a really effective way to just sort of have Chris like process her grief and um like keep her late wife you know alive in a, in a certain capacity um yeah so yeah I think it, it really came together for what it, it needed to be and what purposes I needed it to serve and it, it so balances out her character um because we get her very very angry early on even though you didn't include her like punching out the guy and, and using physical violence yeah, yeah, yeah. Like capable <laughs> of it. and then we have this 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 tenderness um and so and it starts out it starts out 
it's almost, I mean, she's at a high pitch at the beginning of this. She's already very angry. She's already mm -hmm. in a very bad situation. And then it sounds like she escalates even further, right? As the book continues. Um, I mean, it really, it really depends. Like there's sort of this, these waves of, you know, depression and, and just falling into these holes. And then it's, yeah, it's all sort of like, there's an underlying rage at the system and at the fact that Bo had to die and at the fact that Chris, you know, at least got given an extra shot at like in adulthood. She has this rage at, at what her kid is going to have to go through and, and be a shadester from day one. And especially like when she goes to school and there aren't going to be probably not any or many other shadester kids. Um, so, so it's really just like sort of like how many of us are living in 2023 United States, like just like that, that like underlying rage that doesn't really go away, even though you have to function and you have to care for your family and you have to participate in capitalism and all of these other things that sort of suck energy or, or like exhaust you, but like you still have that, thing, that anger that's just bubbling there and just yeah. lives there. Yeah. And what you've provided with yourself too. So I see a lot of novels in which a character is, is caught in grief. And, and so the, the grief or the, the death of the loved one is used as the inciting incident of the book, like why the book is happening then. However, grief can just stall a person. It can mm -hmm. just stop a person. And that's not going to give you a novel uh, because they, they'll just be, they can just sit on the couch for yeah years <laughs> so you yeah. actually had to have the child and you had to have that new problem in, mm -hmm. in order to drive the in order to drive the story forward it wouldn't have functioned without both of those really yeah that's exactly it um yeah. yes because then it's like right she's grieving but it's really like about about dealing with this other monstrous issue um on top of that grief almost like how do you push through this thing um and like the added tension of which like you find out you know pretty quickly on that like Chris was like the ambivalent parent of the two like Bo really really wanted a kid Bo was like all in like let's have kids and Chris was much more like I'm not sure about this I think I would suck at this um Da, 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 but I'm going to like do it because I love you and you want a kid and I want to be with you. So I'm going to like figure it out. So that like adds an entire other layer to, to parenting. Like um, how do you now raise this kid alone or effectively alone in the beginning until, until she finds community and whatnot um, when this really wasn't what she wanted in the first place. And it always had felt sort of like a compromise. Um, yeah. And how does she still like make that kid feel loved and, you know, right. nourished and, and everything like that um, while dealing right. with her own ambivalence and grief? Like there's just layers upon layers. Poor Chris. I just like annihilated her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's good. You can't be too protective of your main character. OK, we're going to have to let Marissa go. Um, 
But I just, I love this uh, beginning. So I hope you guys grab up this book and really take a look, and particularly at those first pages, particularly if you're writing speculative fiction and are dealing with some of the same issues that they are dealing in uh, their book. So you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as any of your, um, as well as any uh, episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can reach other listeners. So one last question for you, Marissa, do you have any advice you'd give to authors about their own first pages? <laughs> we did talk about this. I'm very, I'm very careful about whether I give advice or not because uh, it can feel very prescriptive and through the lens of my experience. But generally what I like to do is just no matter what, whatever my guiding principle is, what I'm writing is that I'm chasing my obsessions and passions and the thing that I can't stop thinking about. And in this case, it was this first line and it, and I, anything that's driven by, I think that type of obsession and inability to stop thinking about it is probably a worthwhile topic to at least investigate or an idea that's worth investigating because when we have that energy and passion behind it, it, it the reader can feel it too. Absolutely. And you can absolutely feel it in these pages. And it probably helps you show up at your desk day after day or week after week, whatever your schedule is, and, and just try to get that writing done. Okay. I think that's excellent advice. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Marissa, for being with us. And we got to get everyone back to their own writing desk and working on their own first pages. So good luck, everyone. 